his Father's Day, and I thinking there there are certain passages of Scripture that can that are frequently misused and abused. And on Father's Day, one that comes to mind is a proverb that many of us know well, parents, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so some, some take a passage like that as this kind of formulate pro, uh, promise of God that if you, if you do good as parents, then you're going to raise good children who become good adults one day. And, and, and so by implication of that, if your children end up going the way of the prodigal, then you really messed this up and you've done something wrong and you didn't do your job right. Uh, or if your children grow up into adults who are just kind of decent human beings, then good job. You, you did it. You, you obeyed the Lord and, and the Lord rewarded you in that way. Well, so, so this proverb that's meant for encouragement to parents and instruction to parents, it becomes kind of this, um, this, this source of shame for some and a platform for boasting for others. That's, that's a, it's a misuse of a passage. I, I remember an, another example of this. I, when I was a new believer, I, I went to the Christian bookstore. And, you know, my, if I had the money, I would buy Christian T-shirts and Christian music. And, and I had some terrible T-shirts. But, uh, but one of them, I remember, had uh, uh, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Printed on. on the other side, it was this guy dunking, dunking a basketball. And as a short, uh, aspiring basketball player, I thought, yeah, it's like this inspiration. You know, maybe I can dunk it one day. Um, not, not what that passage means. Well, this morning's text is one of those passages that, that I have heard often misused and, and certainly misapplied in the church. And it's, and it's misapplied in, actually in a very ironic way. Um, it, a passage that's intended to deflate pride, to, to foster humility, to, to uh, promote unity in the church is actually sometimes used to justify arrogance and to fuel kind of an elitism in the church and to, and to actually cause division. And so there are Christians, particularly preachers, uh, writers, bloggers, who will pontificate on all kinds of issues, whether it's theology or morality or politics or social issues, whatever it is. And if you, if you challenge them on any point, if you push back against them, they might throw back Paul's words in verse 12 of this chapter at you. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so if you disagree with them, you, you might be accused of being the person that he describes in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, for he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. You don't get it. So, in other words, if you agree with him, you're spiritual. If you disagree with him, you're not. And you can push a little harder and say, well, how do you, how do you know the things you're saying are true? How, how, do they, how do you know they align with historic, orthodox Christianity? And they may reply, quoting verse 15, I've heard this. The spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. So you can see how an interpretation like that, this is, passage can be used that way, and, the, and particularly the attitude behind it can cause all kinds of problems in churches. It can lead to just kind of simple misunderstandings, and it can lead to really an abusive kind of authoritarianism in the church, where you, where you have utterly self-focused leaders who are accountable to no one other than themselves. 
And you say, that's not what this passage means. If you've heard an interpretation like that, or if you've used that, I'm, I'm trying to take the legs out from under you right now. I hope that's not the case. But, but the key to understanding this text, as, as Pastor Dial alluded to, is that little word, yet. Yeah, it's, it's understanding it in its context, in the flow of thought as Paul's writing this letter to this church. And so verse 6 doesn't start a brand new section in this letter. It's not like, all right, let's talk about something different now, a new topic. No, it's a continu- continuation of what he's been saying since verse 18 of chapter 1. So Paul's been dealing with this divisiveness in the church at Corinth and going after that pride in particular that fuels the, the, the factions and the friction that's in that, that uh, assembly there. And so, and as he's been doing it, we've said he's not just laying down a bunch of new rules. He's not telling people to keep separate from one another. He's not trying to referee and say, all right, uh, you're more right, you're more wrong, and you're more to blame, you're less to blame, and so let's, let's pick sides. No, what he does is in the middle of that mess, he plants the cross right in the middle of it. That's what he's been doing. And so to, to this church eaten up with elitism and, and, and groups claiming to have the corner on that wisdom that was so valued in that culture, Paul lifts up the message of the cross over and against all of that so-called wisdom of the world that they clung to and they prided themselves in. And so, so when Paul talks in verse 6 about, now he, look at verse 6 again, about this imparting wisdom, he's not, he's not changing subjects. It's not like Paul's kind of been denigrating, you know, that wisdom that they're so proud of. And now he's saying, well, you know, but there is this subjective esoteric wisdom that we need to pursue. That's not it at all. He has the cross in view here. Christ crucified. Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. And so if, if this part of the letter, if we could imagine that image, uh, this, this part of the letter is a tree, the trunk of the tree is the cross of Christ. It's Calvary. And it's, it's what everything in the passage is supported by the cross. Everything is connected to the cross. And so in, in this passage, though, there are going to be these three big limbs that, that branch off of that tree trunk, the, the, the cross of Christ. And, and we're going to see it in these three controlling contrasts in this passage, these contrasts that he, as he makes this argument. And so this is, this is a, 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 a tricky passage to to understand, at least on the surface, I think the, ev- the meaning is going to be very evident as we walk through the passage, but it is one of the more difficult passages in this, in this letter. Now, I don't want you to be intimidated by that or turned off by that. This isn't meant to be confusing at all. It's meant to be wonderfully encouraging, brothers and sisters, and my prayer is that it will be this morning. There is glorious truth for us here. There are, there's gold in these verses, and we want to mine it this morning and, and see it for all of its beauty. And so my hope this morning, and as I've been praying for us this week, is that we would, uh, put this on the screen, that we would revel in the grace of God. Revel in the grace of God that's revealed in the gospel, and it is received through the Holy Spirit. We've been talking much about that first part, the, the re- revelation of the grace of God in the gospel. Now we're going to give more emphasis to that fact that it's received now through the Holy Spirit. So let's look at these three contrasts. This morning, the first contrast we'll see in in verses 6 to 10 there, and and it's this. It's those who get it, those who don't. Those who get it and those who don't. What I mean is there are those who receive God's wisdom and those who will not receive it. Now, we're going to see in verse 10, and and we'll emphasize this more in a moment, but those who get it, those who receive God's wisdom, they, they have no grounds for boasting because it is the work of the Holy Spirit in them. 
And that's going to be the big point. But, but listen, Paul's already made clear, as we've been looking in this letter in this first and second chapter, that there are, the, 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 the message of the cross, it elicits one of two responses. To some, it is utter nonsense. Most, it's utter nonsense. It's weakness. It's foolishness. But to those who believe... Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so you see this contrast already, but in verse 6, we're going we're gonna to see it in different language. He sets up this contrast. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So Paul's, Paul's using some irony here to make his point. And so he's using the kind of the lingo that these proud Corinthians love to love to love to use. And so they love to talk about wisdom and about the mature and about the spiritual. These were these were buzzwords in this church because they were buzzwords in the culture. And so this is the language they they use to promote their kind of elitist version of Christianity. And so they love to describe themselves with the, themselves with these words. And so Paul's cleverly uh, dismantling that right here. And so he and he does it though by using their vocab. And he's completely redefining it though. So uh, he thinks about the mature. We often think of that as describing sort of a subset of Christians. There are mature Christians, there are immature Christians, and 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 there that's there's some truth to that. He's going to make a distinction like that in in the next verses in chapter three. Well he'll say within kind of the Christian camp, you Corinthian believers, you're 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 like spiritual babies. You you need to grow up and you need to mature, but that's not the distinction he's making here in chapter 2. In this context, the mature, the word means complete, perfect. It refers to all Christians. That's what he's saying with this word. Those who've embraced the message of the cross and who are now, who find completeness in Christ. That's very evident in the context. So, so the dividing line that they were drawing was within the church. They had all of these lines of division. I'm a Paul. I'm a Paulus. I'm, you know, these, they're, they're, we're the spiritual ones. We're the wise ones. We're the mature ones. So they had all of these lines of division through the church. And Paul, he takes those lines and he moves them. And he says, no, there's only one line that matters. It's this dividing line, not through the church, it's through humanity. There are those who, who, those who are mature, those who have received the wisdom of the cross, and those who have not and rejected it in favor of the wisdom of this age. That's the dividing line. So he, he's using their line, but completely recalibrating the way they're thinking about it. And, and notice he, he talks about the rulers of this age. I mean, it's, it's going to come up again. And so it, that, that phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament of, of like demonic uh, spiritual powers. That's not the... That's not what he's saying here. It's just those who rule kind of the outlook and the values of the age. These are in the context the wise and the noble and the strong and the philosophers and the debaters of this age that we've been talking about before. They're the best the world can put forth. And what do we see? Yet they vehemently oppose the message of the cross. And so they, they, they and their wisdom, they're going to pass away because it's is not of ultimate value, but not so with the wisdom that we proclaim in part. Look at verse 7. For we, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And so again, the wisdom, it's, it's, it's connected to the cross. We can't see it any other way in this context. And look how this wisdom is characterized. One, God hid it. God hid it for a long time. 
Some of your translations may even use that word mystery, and, and, and that's good. But that mystery in the New Testament, it's not, uh, it's not mysterious. It's not hidden like, uh, like the treasure out in uh, Colorado that, you know, is all in the news lately. And, and, and it's not that kind of thing. It's, it's something that's hidden in the past, but now it's revealed. It's open plainly. And so the gospel... The gospel, it's in the Old Testament. We saw this. We looked and we studied through the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, it's, you know, there's kind of proto-gospel in, 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 the, uh, in, in Genesis right away. And, and you see the gospel in the Old Testament and these direct prophecies and all of these types and shadows. But it wasn't seen with the perfect clarity until Christ came. God had concealed it. So he says it's, it's hidden. It's a secret hidden wisdom of God. And the second thing he, he says is it's that God planned it long ago. Look, he says, God decreed it before the ages for our glory. Just because it was hidden and revealed later doesn't mean it's something that's kind of like this novel idea that God had. And you know what? Maybe we're going to do it this way now. No, in God's mind, it stretches back before time even began. God, who knows the end from the beginning, planned for our salvation to be accomplished through the suffering of the Messiah before the world was created. But this is what he's saying. Because of humanity's sinfulness and rebellion, we couldn't see it. The rulers of the age couldn't see it, the wisdom of the age. So verse 8, none of the rulers of the age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then he goes on to cite scripture. And he, he's, he's blending Isaiah 64, verse 4, and chapter 65, verse 17. And he says, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined... What God has prepared for those who love him. Now, this is not a, a, a gross misuse, but uh, this is probably, you've, you may have heard these words quoted in the context of a funeral or something like that. Like, the glories of heaven that await uh, this brother or sister in Christ and, and after death. But that, that's wonderful. That's a true thought. It's just the wrong passage to support that. That's not... That's not how Paul's using these, 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 this passage. Paul's using these words to refer to what has been hidden in the past and is now made plain. It's the gospel. It's, it's the message of Christ crucified. And now we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it and hearts to, 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 to believe it. And, and so we've been, we've been given this incredible blessing of seeing and benefiting from God's unbelievable plan of redemption. That's what he's saying. We have this unspeakable privilege, brothers and sisters, of knowing God and of being reconciled to him because of Christ's death and resurrection. But most don't have that. Most don't see it. Most still don't see God's plan of of a crucified Messiah as being wise. They see it as ridiculous, foolishness, weakness. This is, this is what he's saying, this is the dividing line through humanity. So the question for us then is if we, the mature, as he's using it here, who are in Christ, we've come to grasp it, others haven't, what is it that makes a difference? What, us, what is it that moves us from one side of that line to the other? Is there something special about us? Is there something uh, that, that special about us in, in terms of our innate human nature that, that we are just more inclined that way? Are we better? Are we, more, are we more in tune with truth or to reality than others? Are we more spiritual? The answer is no, not at all. Look at the difference. Verse 10. These things 
God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The difference is not the acumen of of the person. The difference is the activity of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. This is what ultimately distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever. The mature from the people of this age and the rulers of this age. What is it? It's the fact that we see the truth of the gospel has nothing to do with our brilliance or insight. It has everything to do with the gracious and powerful work of the Spirit of God. So just... Just, brothers and sisters, as we sing, we, our hearts overflow with gratitude and we sing of the gift of the Son and His death and resurrection in our place. And we should, brothers and sisters, so our hearts should overflow with gratitude for the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to grasp the goodness and the grace of the gospel. That's the first contrast. The second contrast we see in the second part of verse 10 there, and, and it begins to be developed, and, and we, we've alluded to this, and these all overlap. But it's the spirit of God and the spirit of the world. The spirit of God and the spirit of the world. So, again, as sinners, we, we don't possess the ability to know God, to understand his ways. We don't have that in and of ourselves. The, the distance between us and God is too great. Our, our self-centeredness is too ingrained. We can't... We can't see him as he is, and so we can't look inside of ourselves. We can't, we can't reason ourselves to, to, to know God. To the, to, we, can't, um, we can't in and of ourselves produce what's necessary to, to grasp and lay hold of the wisdom of God, which is the message of the cross. And we also can't look outside of ourselves to the wisdom of the age and look around us and think we're going to find it there because the world isn't neutral. No, the world, like all of us, we're, is, is in rebellion against God. There's no, no matter how civil it may sound, no matter how scientific and how spiritual it's packaged, the, 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 the world and the wisdom of this age is centered on man, not God. So we need something from outside, from outside of us, from outside of this world. What do we need? We need, we need God's voice. We need, God's, we need revelation from God. And the agent who brings this revelation to us, Paul says here, is the Spirit of God. He tells us about God. He tells us about God's ways. Ultimately, he tells us about the wisdom of the cross. And so as humans, we are, we are wonderfully, magnificently made in the image of God. But we are limited. We are limited just by the fact we're creatures. We're especially limited by the fact of the fall. So there are enormous barriers, aren't there, between, between, uh, that, that, that keep us from knowing fully and, and, and fully understanding other knowing beings, other human beings, other, certainly angels or God. And so no matter how well I know you, I don't know you fully. I don't know all of your thoughts. No matter how well you know me, you don't know all of my thoughts. Uh, that the thoughts of an individual human being are, for the most part, are hidden from other human beings, aren't they? Like, I mean, Brooke, she, she will sometimes look at me, and because of some smirk on my face or, you know, my response to something that's just happened in a public space, she'll say, I know what you're thinking. And she's right. <laughs> she does. She often knows exactly what I'm thinking and what I'm wanting to say. And, but, but the reality is, she, she can understand some of my thoughts, some of the time, 
to some degree of detail. But even in that moment, it's just kind of a generic thought. She doesn't, she doesn't know with detail, with you know, multiple dimensions of the, the level of thoughts that we're having all the time, even as I'm speaking right now, and you're thinking about lunch and this and that and the other, and, and weighing all of these things out. We're, there's so much going on. There's always more that we're thinking. But listen, God has no limitations. None. They're the one knowing being who knows all thoughts, all of our thoughts, all everyone's thoughts, even God's thoughts is what? It's, it's God himself. Or to use Paul's words here, look at verse 10. The spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So if we're, to, if we're to understand God, if we're to truly know him, we are going to have to receive the Spirit of God who searches the depths of God. We simply cannot find him by ourselves. We can't find him by looking around us in this world But there's this glorious news, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have received the Spirit. We have. Look at verse 12. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, the world that's scratching and can't understand and doesn't understand the crucifixion of the Lord and the rulers of the age didn't get it or they wouldn't have crucified. No, we've not received that Spirit. We have received the Spirit who is from God. And and there's a purpose that comes with that that gift. And you see what he goes on. He says, why? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. The things freely given to us by God. What is that? In, In the context, it's the cross of Christ and all that was achieved for us. That's what's emphasis. This is amazing grace. He's really given us all these incredible blessings and benefits and gifts that come through the saving work of Christ, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, and on and on and on. They just spill out. But what? The sad reality is we would not have understood those things on our own. We were born blind to those realities, blinded by the spirit of the world. Now, don't hear me when I say something like, don't think that we were like passive victims or something like that. No, we were fully culpable in our blindness, in our lack of understanding. We were rebels at heart. This is what makes God's gracious intervention in in opening our eyes. This is what it makes it all all the more gracious and amazing. And so in our deep self-centeredness and our love for power and prestige. We, we wouldn't have understood the cross. We wouldn't have grasped our need for it. Our lostness, our lostness, listen, it required the work of the Spirit of God in order for us to, as he says, understand the things freely given us by God. What What a God. What mercy. Not only does he provide redemption through the the very public crucifixion of Jesus, 
but he sends us his spirit to enable us to understand and embrace and trust all that Jesus has done for us, to know and understand the things freely given to us by God. And you look at verse 13, the same spirit that that does that and has done that for us who are in Christ. And listen, he can do for you today if you will trust him. The same spirit who provoked who does that for us and opened our eyes to understand and our minds to understand those things, also is the same spirit who provoked Paul to preach the message of the cross the way that he did. The message we impart, verse 13, is not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but those who are spiritual... It, that, that just simply means, it's not a, again, it's not a subspecies of Christians, the, the spiritual ones and the unspiritual or less spiritual ones. No, this refers to all Christians, those who have the Spirit of God. And so, so what does this phrase mean here? This is a difficult phrase, even to translate, uh, trying to figure out the interpretation is tricky, but it means something like this. Paul's saying that the Holy Spirit himself has taught him to avoid, we talked about last week, the, the wisdom of clever words, uh, that that. That, that way of speaking that empties the cross of its power. It's the spirit who's taught him to avoid that, but has led him to speak these spiritual words that are appropriate to the nature of the message. Does that make sense? And so it's the Holy Spirit of God who, who enables those who have the Holy Spirit to understand the message of the cross. And it's the same spirit that prompts Paul and prompts us to proclaim it in, in ways that conform to the to the humbling immensity of this message. It's the Spirit. It's His work. So, all right, stay with me. we got one more contrast, and then we're done. I know you're thinking probably at this point, all right, Paul, we get it. You've made your point. Uh, let's, let's move on. Or you're at least thinking, Justin, we get it. Move on, please. Um, Paul's not done yet, and we're not, I'm not quite done yet either. So, Third contrast in verses 14 to 16, it's, it's the contrast between what he calls the natural person and the spiritual person. Natural person and the spiritual person. Paul wants to make absolutely sure that his readers fully grasp that they are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God. Why, why does, again, let's back up and let's remember he's planning the cross, boom, right in the middle of their mess, all their divisiveness, all their pride, all their factions. What is it? Because this truth, nothing will so quickly humble our perennial lust for greatness and and all of the divisiveness and all of the self-centeredness and all of the lovelessness that follows on the heels of that pride. Nothing will dissolve that like this truth. So what Paul does, he, he, he contrasts the, the person with the spirit, the, or excuse me, without the spirit, the natural person, verse 14, with the spiritual person, verse 15. And by the time he's finished with this contrast, he's like, case closed. It's done. The, the, the only reason the gospel wasn't complete gobbledygook to you is because of the spirit. That's the only reason. We have no grounds for boasting. So Paul says a couple things about, about these, the, the natural person. He says, they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why don't they accept the things of the Spirit of God? For a simple reason. They're, these things are folly to them, verse 14. 
So, so we don't embrace the things that we think are ridiculous. That's no, nobody does that. So the, this, this wonderful, life-transforming, redeeming, those, those things of the Spirit of God that he's mentioned, the, the message of Christ crucified, they're diminished and dismissed as utter foolishness. Why? Because it's, it's based upon a crucified Messiah. That's so counter to everything in our kind of triumphalist nature. It's, it's just natural to man. So they don't accept the things of the Spirit of God. And, and then secondly, he says, they're not able to understand them because these things, they're spiritually discerned. So he rules out the possibility that anybody could ever understand these things without the Spirit's help. We have this utter innate inability to, to grasp those things, the gospel. I mean, I just, I, I can test. I grew up attending good, solid Bible churches when I was young, and, and I was at vacation Bible school. I was in Sunday school. I mean, I, I, I heard the gospel countless times as a child, memorized the passages of Scripture so I could get candy and other things, you know, and and, and snow cones of VBS and all that stuff, and, and memorized gospel, gospel tracts when I went into the youth group, and so you know, I could go on this trip or whatever. I, I could explain the facts, but it, but it all remained folly to me because the meaning of those facts is, as Paul says, spiritually discerned. We have to have the Spirit. I needed the Spirit to open my blind eyes to discern things that I already... I already knew in some sense, had heard repeatedly, but my eyes were blind. I mean, we ask questions, what's the difference as we, as we evangelize, we share the gospel with other people, what's the difference between those who, who don't receive it, who don't trust in Christ, and those, uh, or, excuse me, those who do receive it and do trust, and those who haven't yet? What's the, what's the difference? I mean, the ultimate distinction, brothers and sisters, it's the, it's the work of the Spirit, we, we do our part, and we must. It's not making us go apathetic or into passive mode. No, we speak clearly and understandably and, and passionately and compellingly this glorious message. But that's not enough. We can't bring somebody from darkness to light by the, the matter of our persuasion. Paul's analogy in the next chapter is going to be, you know, there may be a Paul who sows seed. There may be an Apollos who comes and waters it. But ultimately, it is God who makes things grow and gives fruit. So the point is we, we can't possibly grasp the glories of the gospel unless the Spirit of God is at work. So he says in verse 15, the, the spiritual person, again, the, the person with the Spirit, he judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. Again, this is the verse I alluded to earlier. It's kind of ripped out of context and has been used to justify all kinds of expressions of arrogance. Uh, some people kind of think they're, they're the, I've heard it said, the elite of the elect, and, and that they, they are the spiritual and discerning ones. They have uh, authority on all kinds of issues, and just go to them, and they'll tell you what to think, what to believe, and they're so spiritual, and, and others, therefore, don't have the right to judge what they're saying at all. That's not what this is talking about. Again, the spiritual person is not part of some elite class of Christians. The, the contrast is between the Christian, the spiritual person who has the Spirit of God, and the, and the non-Christian who is void of the Spirit of God, the natural person. And when, he, and when he says the spiritual person judges all things, 
that all things is, is controlled by the context here. In other words, just because someone's a Christian, it doesn't make them a better mechanic or oncologist. And, and you don't have to look for the little fish logo on the side of the vehicle to know whether they're going to do any good fixing your pipes or something like that. that that's not it. The all things is, in the context, it's verse 12. It's the things freely given to us by God. In verse 14, it's the things of the Spirit of God. So because we've received the Spirit of God, we're, we're now able and capable to say and believe wise and right things about God. In particular, we can know and talk about the gospel, the message of Christ crucified. And so the person without the Spirit can't do that. They can't possibly understand the, the true wisdom of God that's revealed on the cross of Christ because they don't have the Spirit. No more than a, a colorblind person. No offense to those that are colorblind here. No, but we're, we're not going to listen to you lecture us on the dramatic differentiations in color of the sunset or something like that. You, you can't see it. And so Paul brings the argument to a, to a close here with this biblical quotation in Isaiah 40. It's from Isaiah 40, verse 13. In verse 16, he says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Now, as he uses that quote, it cuts a couple ways, doesn't it? One, on the one hand, it's a blow to our pride. He's saying, you, we, we, can't, we can't match wits with God. We can't. In our, in our finiteness and our fallenness, we will not by ourselves know the mind of the Lord. We will judge his wisdom as foolishness. Unless God's spirit enlightens us, God's thoughts are going to seem foreign and strange and alien to us. On the other hand, he says, the end of verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. This is, this is another way of saying we have, we have the spirit of God. It gives us understanding. Therefore, we've understood something of God's wisdom. We've understood the, the wisdom of the cross, and that sets us apart from the world. I know, there's a lot there. Just If you've lost it, come back to me here just for a, a, a moment or two. I want to just talk a couple implications of this, this passage as we mine these truths this morning. One, it relates to the, the direct application in this letter. It's to unity. It's to unity. How, how does this speak to that broad issue that Paul's addressing in these verses? And, 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 but I would just say this, this passage, it undercuts... Pride it, it, and division, and it fosters humble unity in a couple ways. One, and we've made much of this already. We have, listen, we have no grounds for boasting. None. We are who we are because of God's work. And that's it. God's saving work in Christ, God's application of that work through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We, we participate in this glorious salvation, not because of our strivings, but because of God's Spirit. That's it. There's no boasting. We're not better than the unsaved. We're not better than one another. We didn't come in, depending on what age we, we came to trust in Christ and, 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 and be redeemed. It, no, there's no boasting. Another way that speaks to unity is we have all received the gospel through the Spirit's work. And what I mean is, is that reception, it's not on some continuum. Like some are, you know, a little more 
more spiritual, less spiritual than others. That's not, that's not it. We are spiritual because we have the Spirit. Now, there's, we're going to see next week, there, there, there are differences in maturity, and, and Paul's going to kind of say, I'm speaking to you as unspiritual people, as you're still babes in Christ. But, but what, I, what I want to see in this passage is this wonderful leveling effect that this has. There's no grounds for elitism in the church. What we have, who we are positionally, our identity, we share that together. And that leads to a kind of a third way this speaks to uh, our unity is, is that the cross then becomes our rallying point. The gospel, our, our unity centers on the message of Christ crucified, which means we have far more in common with one another in the church than we have in common with anyone who is outside of Christ. Uh, again, I'm not, this is, the, the, don't take that as I know this is, we, we say things like that, oh, there's those judgmental Christians. And we, there's no grounds for boasting. We have, we're not claiming any, any superiority from those that are outside of Christ at all. It's the grace of God alone. But, but I'm saying our unity, there, that, that this is, we, we can agree with unbelievers on all kinds of matters. And we can learn from unbelievers on all kinds of things. But the grounds for true unity, it's found in the cross of Christ. This is what he's speaking to. All of those lines of division, he says, let's put them together and let's sit it through humanity instead of the church. So unity. Second, finally, joy. Joy. I hope that you see this without me even saying anything. But as we come to understand more and more the wisdom of God that's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, and and we realize because because of Jesus, we are fully in God, and we belong fully to God, we will be filled with immense overflowing joy, sustaining joy. Through the Spirit, God has revealed God's love for us in Christ, and he's revealed the way of salvation that is now ours in Christ. He's enabled us to, to be able to understand what has happened for us in the death of Jesus and, and to know that his death was for us. What, what grace. I know often the, the Christian life is kind of portrayed as, as kind of uh, this long list of rules that's to be followed, and it's, it's rather boring and, and tedious and depressing existence until Christ comes back in glory. That is not the picture that Paul paints here. It's not. We, as Christians, have so much already. We have Christ. We understand God's plan of salvation in Christ. We experience that salvation. We enjoy new life in him. We enjoy the blessings of fellowship together in Christ. We have the mind of Christ, meaning what? We can look and see just how much has been freely given by God to us in Jesus. That is joy. That is joy. That is, that is beyond what any one of us could ever imagine. That is, and, and we can say, when we, when we get that, we can say with, with, increasing, with increasing awe and with humble gratitude and with ecstatic joy, 
These things, brothers and sisters, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, who is, who is adequate to say these things? These are, these are wonderful glories that you've set before us in your word, that you've taught us by your Holy Spirit. And for so many in this room who are in Christ, you've opened our eyes through the Holy Spirit to receive and understand the wisdom of the cross. But yet, even as believers, even those of us who've tasted of your kindness, Lord, we still scratch and want to know more and more of the glories of Jesus and of the gospel. And we know there are, there's so much more to be un, un, unveiled to us, Lord, for all eternity, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so, Lord, I, I feel my own inadequacy in, in proclaiming these things, but I pray that in, that gap would, would be more than sufficiently filled through the work of your Spirit. As, as, as I pray that, that each one of us would receive this word from you, these glorious realities, and, and would be helped and encouraged today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.